Let's pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We continue with our series through the book of Exodus tonight, coming to one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, one that will be familiar to many of you, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, be reading the first two verses, the prologue to the Ten Commandments, and we will be taking a week each on the commandments. And whether you have studied the commandments many times or not, I think that you will find there is yet more for us to learn Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments are not actually called, strictly speaking, the Ten Commandments anywhere in the Bible. But there are three passages in Scripture where they are referred to as the Ten Words, and translated often as the Ten Commandments. But it's the Ten Words, and sometimes then this section is called the Decalogue, ten being Greek word deca and logos, as we know, being the word for word. So they are the Ten Words or the, the Ten Commandments. But the problem is not so much with what you call them. The problem is the problem of the human heart that we would rather not have God tell us what to do. There was a story on CNN a few years ago called Atheist's New Ten Commandments. And it was about a contest that two authors were having, and part of it was to drum up some publicity for a book that two atheists had written about how you can be good without God. And they had a contest. They were going to crowdsource Ten Commandments. So they got more than 2,800 submissions from 18 countries, states all over this country. And then they had a team of 13 judges to select the ten non-commandments. Here's what they came up with. Number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Commandment number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Four, every person has the right to control their body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Seven, Treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Eight, 
We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Number nine, there is no one right way to live. And number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. Sounds about right. Not for the commandments, but what you might think that a internet contest would come up with for 10 commandments. And many of them we can say, oh, sure, you know, be open-minded, be open to investigation and sort of common sense. But when you even give a cursory examination of these Ten Commandments, I hope you would find that they are filled with contradictions. They say that God has nothing to do with these ethical guidelines, and you can be good without God, and yet, maybe unwittingly, they quote from the golden rule from Jesus, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. They talk about the use of the scientific method as being the avenue to truth. I think probably ignorant of the fact that the widespread popularity of the scientific method, which first began with Francis Bacon in England, came over to the United States and owed much of its popularity to Scottish Presbyterians, who found it to be not only a way of looking at the natural world, but a way of observing the created order that God has before us. And they are logically indefensible. They're called non-commandments. That's the heading. Here are 10 non-commandments. Well, that sounds sort of nice and soft and PC. They're non-commandments, but every single one of them comes at you with a certain moral force. And did you notice the ninth commandment? This is the most laughable of them all. After all of these commandments, leave the world a better place, you have control over your body. We have the responsibility to consider future generations, use the scientific method, etc. Number nine, eh, but there's no one right way to live. So really, you would think a moment's notice would show you that either number nine is true or the other nine are true, but not both. Because if you are going to give nine other commandments, the tenth cannot be, eh, you know, whatever. They want to have their cake and eat it too. And I know the contest was just a publicity stunt for the book, but the authors seem to think that it's a good mechanism for discovering your moral code by seeking the wisdom of crowds. Here's what they say in the article. It says, Buyer, that's one of the, uh, the authors, said humans are hardwired for compassion. And the scientific method and the wisdom of crowds or the tribes that gather online each day will weed out bad ideas. In other words, this is an open-ended and hopefully progressive process, he said. Just throw it open to the internet and they'll weed out bad ideas because that's what the internet does best. <laughs> it weeds out bad ideas. Do any of you remember, this was a story from last year. In fact, we were visiting the UK at the time and I remember them talking about this. The British government decided that they were going to throw it open to the internet to name this new $287 million polar research vessel that they were creating. And so they threw it open and they suggested that British citizens might want to have names like Shackleton, famous explorer, Endeavor, Falcon. So they, they threw out a few, here's a few ideas, but we're gonna give it an internet contest. You can name our new research vessel. 
And do you know what the runaway vote by far of this great internet contest to name this state-of-the-art, cutting-edge polar research vessel in Her Majesty's fleet? The name? Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> Bodie McBoatface. It, you have to love the British sense of humor. Uh, once it got momentum going, everyone just says, vote for Bodie McBoatface. Now, the British agency in charge decided in the end that the wisdom of crowds was not so wise, and so they overruled that, and they went with the fourth place winner, which was to name the boat after Sir David Attenborough, who you may know, his wonderful British voice narrating the Planet Earth videos. So sometimes the wisdom of crowds is not all that wise. Perhaps crowdsourcing our ethical and moral foundation is not really the best way to go about it. So this evening we come to the Ten Commandments, and before we get to commandment number one next week, thought it would be wise to answer two other questions first. So here are the two questions. Number one, why should we study the Ten Commandments? And number two, why should we obey the Ten Commandments? Why study them? Why obey them? I have five answers to each question, so you can think of this as the ten words before the ten words. And when we get to the second of those five, we will come to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. So why study the Ten Commandments? Let me give you five reasons. First, people are largely ignorant of the Ten Commandments. In our churches, and certainly everywhere else, most churches don't recite them anymore. They, they aren't read as a part of Lord's Day worship. In many churches, they would not instruct their children in them. They would not have to memorize them. How many of us, if we just had to come up on the spot right now, give me the Ten Commandments, could get through all ten? And if that's in the church, certainly in society people don't know them. In a recent study, 80% of Americans knew that two all-beef patties were among the ingredients of the Big Mac, but only 60% could identify thou shalt not kill as one of the Ten Commandments. That's not one of the hard ones. <laughs> this statistic is mind-blowing. 35% of respondents could name all six Brady children. This is a television show that went off the air, or at least you know, went into syndication, it was canceled before I was born. A third of Americans can name all six Brady kids, 25% can name all seven ingredients of the Big Mac, 14% could list all the Ten Commandments. So we are largely ignorant of them, and yet it's no exaggeration to say these ten rules have been the most influential law code ever given. That's not an exaggeration. Simply out of interest in world history, let alone Western history, you have to acknowledge the significance of the Ten Commandments. There are a number of different lawgivers that are sculpted on the, the promenade of the Supreme Court, and Moses with the Ten Commandments is one of them. In fact, in three or four spots in the Supreme Court building, there are these architectural embellishments with Moses or the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 4.6 says, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
And indeed, that has proven true over all these millennia that people have gone back to these 10 laws that were given by God on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. And today, we are largely ignorant of them. That's the first reason. Second reason to study them, the church has historically put the Ten Commandments at the center of its instruction for God's people, especially for children and new believers. For centuries, catechetical instruction centered on three things in the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. This was true for centuries when, when Christians said, okay, what are the basics? What do we want children to know? And what if we have a new Christian? What do we want to instruct them in? They would say, Here, here's the shape of our curriculum. Three things. The Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. If you want to have the basics of the Christian faith, you need to be well-grounded in those three things. In the Heidelberg Catechism, 11 of the 52 Lord's Days are on the Ten Commandments. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has 107 questions. 42 of them have to do with the Ten Commandments. Even in the Lutheran Larger Catechism, which sometimes we think, well, maybe the Lutherans, they, they're just gospel, Luther, right? He didn't like the law. You can read through their Larger Catechism. More than half of it has to do with the Ten Commandments. You could read even the Catechism of the Catholic Church out of 750 pages, 120, are about the Ten Commandments. This to show that across the spectrum, the Ten Commandments have loomed large in the center of instruction for God's people. Third, the Ten Commandments are central, not only to the history of the church, but central to the ethics of the Mosaic Covenant. You'll notice here in your Bibles, Yahweh is speaking these words directly to the people, not through Moses as his intermediary. It says in verse 1, God spoke all these words. It's a fearful thing. He had been speaking, Moses, you go down, tell the people this, come up and tell me that. Moses was the intermediary. But here he speaks these words in particular to them directly. That's why if you go to the end of the chapter, verse 19, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now God is speaking to us this word directly. It suggests and underlines the importance of these commandments. In fact, the language here of verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, echoes the introduction to another famous covenant, in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, verse 7, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So we know that something big is happening. Just like he said to Abraham, he uses the same template now, speaking to the people at Mount Sinai. Sometimes people will argue, even fine Old Testament scholars will say, look, it's just sort of by tradition that the Ten Commandments are important. But there's hundreds of commandments in the Bible. There's, there's nothing in the Mosaic law that says, hear ye, hear ye, these are the most important ones. But I think if we look more carefully, we can see that that's really not the case. There are a number of factors that set these apart in their significance. Not only that God is speaking to them now face to face, but 
The scene we, we just saw in chapter 19, descending on the mountain with great smoke and deep darkness and fire and thunder. The Ten Commandments are coming in this unique way because they will be the foundational principles for the people of Israel, for God's people. Think of it as, as the Constitution, and then what follows are the regulatory statutes. So notice in chapter 20, you're familiar with the commandments, the direct sort of speech. You shall do this, you shall not do that. Do this, don't do that. And then flip over to chapter 21 and 22. You'll notice a, a distinct change in language. You just notice the paragraph breaks. Verse 2, when you buy a slave. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave. Verse 12, whoever strikes a man. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father. Verse 16, whoever steals a man. So the language is, when this happens, whoever does this, you go to chapter 22, look at the paragraphs. If a man steals an ox, verse 5. If a man causes a field to be grazed over, verse 8. If fire breaks out, if, if, if. Chapter 20 is the constitution. You shall not do this. Here are the laws, the 10 commandments, the moral foundation. We go then to chapter 21 and 22. Now here's how this is going to apply. If this happens, do this. Whenever someone acts this way, you respond in this manner. Whoever does this should be treated with this kind of response. They are the foundational principles. The 10 commandments were central to the ethical life of the Israelites under the Mosaic Covenant. Fourth, reason for studying them. The Ten Commandments are also central to the ethics of the New Testament. Now, some people may be tracking and say, yes, I can see Old Testament. This was important. It was a literal mountaintop experience. But we get to the New Testament and, you know, the, the law sort of gets shoved aside. And there is a different relationship to the Mosaic Covenant. We are now under the New Covenant. But if we look at a few verses we can understand that the Ten Commandments continued to play a central role in the life of the New Testament church. So, so with your Bibles open, I want to show you a few passages. Go to Mark chapter 10. We'll hear from Jesus. This is the famous incident with the, the rich young man who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark 10 verse 17 and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. And he says, you know the commandments. And he begins to speak from the second table of the law. Do not murder. This is verse 19. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now the man says, well, I've kept all these things from my youth. And then Jesus tells him, well, then go sell all you have and give it to the poor. Jesus, when confronted with this man, and Jesus is not, is not agreeing with his assumption that he can keep these commandments really, or that he can somehow earn inheritance to eternal life, but Jesus plays along and he says, okay, you want to know what it is to be a good person? I'll tell you, and he starts listing off the commandments. In Jesus' mind, when he needs to give a convenient summary of what it means to be a faithful follower of God, he goes to the Ten Commandments. And of course, as you've probably realized before, he is setting a bit of a trap for the man because did you notice the only commandment he doesn't mention of the second table of the law 
That's commandments 5 through 10. The one he skips over is do not covet. So he gives them 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and the man just kind of says, oh, yeah, I'd do that. I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. And then Jesus says, okay, well, here's one more. And he gets at the coveting commandment by way of his possessions. And he says, okay, if you think you're getting all those commandments, then why don't you go sell all that you have and give it to the poor? Or, or, or have you not obeyed the 10th commandment, which says, do not covet? The point is Jesus gives as a convenient summary of our obligations before God the Ten Commandments. Turn now to Romans chapter 13. We see something similar with the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, no, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, here he goes into the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Paul is saying, if you want to know what it is to love one another, keep the commandments. If you want to know what it looks like to keep the commandments from the heart, then love one another. Paul hasn't set aside the Ten Commandments. Somehow we're New Covenant Christians, Ten Commandments don't matter. He says, again, you want a convenient summary of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself? Let me give you the second table of the law. One other example, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This one you may not have noticed before. Verse 8, Paul says, 1 Timothy 1, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. So he's saying the law is meant to convict us of sin on the one hand. He says it also can be used rightfully. And then he begins to quote again from the Ten Commandments. And so he says, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, what's that? The fifth commandment. For murderers, sixth commandment. The sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, those are both examples of breaking the seventh commandment. Enslavers, which is breaking the eighth commandment. So even here, sometimes people say, well, but slavery was, you know, just everyone in the Bible is just yay slavery. No, we see here already that two Forcibly put someone into slavery was always a violation of God's commandments. Liars, perjurers, those are the ninth commandments, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The point again, as Paul starts rattling off this ethical advice, his default mode is to start going through the Ten Commandments. And here he doesn't mention them explicitly, but he gives examples of what it looks like to break these commandments, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. According to Jewish tradition, there were 613 commandments in the Mosaic Covenant, 613. And one way of summarizing those is with the 10, and then if you want to summarize them even farther, you can go to the two, and that's what Jesus does. So you have the 613 or the 10 or the 2. The 2 being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Not to erase the Ten Commandments, but to find its fullest and deepest expression. Jesus said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Certainly we are not under the curse of the law. We are not under the Mosaic Covenant as a national covenant like Israel was. 
has been superseded by the new covenant. But we still have the Ten Commandments we see from Jesus and the Apostle Paul as a summary of what it means to obey and worship God. You've heard probably before of the so-called three uses of the law, to restrain wickedness, to convict us of sin, and then what Calvin calls the principal purpose of the law, which is as the instrument to learn the Lord's will. So it's there to restrain wickedness, it's there to convict us of sin and lead us to the cross, but it is also there to show us this is what it looks like to live as God's people. We see the Ten Commandments central, not only in the Mosaic Covenant, but in the New Testament. And then fifth, the law is good. We study the Ten Commandments because the law is good. The commandments, Romans 7:12, are holy and righteous and good. I remember reading an essay by C.S. Lewis, reflecting on those words in Psalm 1, I delight in the law of the Lord. That's, that sounds strange. We, we don't think that way. We, we say, I delight in the mercy of the Lord and the promises of the Lord and the rants, the rescue of the Lord. But why would the psalm say, I delight in the law of the Lord? Think of laws as bad things. Commandments are things that just weigh us down. But the psalmist says, I delight in them. And C.S. Lewis says, it's like finding sturdy, level ground after taking a shortcut that has gone awry. I remember running cross-country in high school, and I'm not proud to say that I sometimes found some really good shortcuts. Not in races, but practices. And if you ever think that just because it cuts off about two miles of your loop, that to run through a muck field is a good shortcut, it's not. Not only is it hard to run through a muck field, they would have these at, at spots in uh, Michigan where they grow, you know, celery and onions and all sorts of other things that some of you eat, and they would be there, and, and you'd run through. Not only is it not really very fast, but it's very hard to sort of hide muck when you run through there, and when you get through a bad shortcut like that and you hit pavement again, you say, ah, oh, I'm thankful for something solid something firm. Lewis says that's what it is, to delight in the law. We don't think often how our lives would be better if the Ten Commandments were to be. Have you ever thought what a utopia we would live in if these simple Ten Commandments were obeyed? You wouldn't have to have locks. You wouldn't have to have security codes. You wouldn't have copyright laws, patent laws, intellectual property rights. You would not have to lock anything away. You wouldn't have to worry about contracts because your word would be your bond. Think about if these Ten Commandments were obeyed from the heart, we'd be living in paradise. So, of course, we delight in the law of the Lord. People sometimes talk about they don't like absolute truth, but think of how much better life would be if we followed the Ten Commandments. No prisons, no contracts, no courts. Just life and love and harmony together. The law is good. That's why we study this. Much more quickly now, let me give you five reasons from our text why we should obey. It's one thing to study. We're not just interested in analyzing them. Why should we obey them? And this is really important especially when we come to the Ten Commandments, because if we get the wrong motivation or the wrong end, we're going to end up with the wrong sort of religion, a religion that says, well, I obey the commandments, so God loves me. 
That's not the answer. Let me give you five reasons for obeying the Ten Commandments. Number one, we obey because of who we are. We saw in Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's who we are. The same language is used in 1 Peter chapter 2, so it was true of God's old covenant people, true of his new covenant people, we're set apart, a special people, a chosen people. So we're to be holy, prepared to stand alone, prepared to live in a way that the world thinks is laughable or worse. God says, this is who you are as my people. Second, we obey the commandments because of who God is in himself. Notice verse 2, Exodus 20, I am the Lord. You understand when you see Lord in those small capital letters, it's translating what we would call Jehovah or Yahweh, the covenant name of God. This is the, the I am, the, the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the, the God of the plagues, the God of the Red Sea, the God who says you want to know who I am. I am that I am, this sovereign, self-existent, self-sufficient, almighty creator God. And each of us, we, we need to decide, is there a God or not? And we don't decide whether he exists, he's going to exist, but we do have to come to that crossroad. Is there a God? Okay, and if there is a God, is he this God in the Bible? Because if there is a God and he's anything at all like this God who descended on Mount Sinai in smoke and flame and fire, how could we possibly think that an internet poll is a good way to establish our moral convictions? Don't you think this is a God we ought to listen to? A God we ought to obey? And more than that, the law is an expression of the lawgiver's heart and character. It shows us what's important to God. It shows us what he's like. It gives a reflection of his moral perfection. So when people say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but uh, the, these commandments and these laws, they sort of just begrudging about it. That reflects an attitude that says, I'm not interested in learning what God is like. They're not arbitrary commands just thrown out there to make our lives miserable. They're a reflection of the very nature and character of God himself. Do not murder. Why? Because God is one who always loves. Do not commit adultery. Why? Because God is one who is always faithful. Do not lie. Why? Because God is one who always tells the truth. They reflect the character of God. We, we cannot thumb our noses at the commandments without also saying, God, I don't really like who you are. I'm not really interested in what you're like. So we obey because of who he is in himself. Third, we obey because of who he is to us. You see in verse 2, I am the Lord, but he doesn't stop right there. I am the Lord your God, not just a God, we would still have to obey him if he said, I am the God, obey me. But he goes one step further and he says, I am the Lord, your God. We saw in chapter 19, he says to Israel, you are my treasured possession. The same language is used of the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is not just a God of raw, unbridled power. He's not some capricious tyrant. In Christ, he is always for us, never against us. 
He's our God. We're his people. Of course we would want to obey this God because of who he is and who he is for us. Fourth, we obey because of where we are. Think about where the Israelites are and where they are not when the Ten Commandments are given. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They were a free people. The Decalogue is not a tool for ordering slaves around. It is a word to former slaves how they can now live in perpetual freedom. As I said several weeks ago, God did not come to the Israelites as slaves in Egypt and say, I've heard your cry, I've seen your groaning, I have ten commandments. Let's give this a shot for six months or so. Let's check back, let's see how you're doing. If you're making some good progress, we'll talk about some plagues. We'll roll out a few plagues, we'll give you six more months, see how you're doing with the commandments. If you really seem to be an obedient people, then I'll set you free, okay? Deal? That's not what he did. He unilaterally came in by his sovereign power. He saved them, set them free from Egypt. And now, as free people, no longer in Egypt, he says, this is how I want you to live. Because Moses stood before Pharaoh and didn't just say, let my people go. He said, let my people go, that they may go into the wilderness and they may worship me. The biblical definition of freedom is not doing whatever you want. Freedom is enjoying the benefits of doing what you should. We too often think of the law or the Ten Commandments as something constraining us to servitude, bondage, what will never be actualized as people, God stealing from us our joy. That's not at all why he gives the commandments. We know Jesus is the truth will set you free. God has come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. Even 1 John 5, 3 says his laws, his commandments are not burdensome. There's a sense in which if you, you know, try to live under the shadow of the law as your righteousness, they're absolutely crushing. But born again by the Spirit of God, as children of God, John can say these commandments are not meant to be burdensome. You think ten commandments are a pain? Do you know how many laws there are in the United States? It's a trick question because no one knows. I looked it up. There are, by one estimate, 20,000 laws on the books just regulating gun ownership. In 2010, there were an estimated 40,000 new laws added at various levels throughout the United States in one year. The U.S. Code has more than 50 volumes, and that doesn't even uh, categorize all the laws, just one subset of them. In 2008, a House committee asked the Congressional Research Service to calculate the number of criminal offenses in the federal law, and they responded in 2013, five years later, that they lacked the manpower and the resources to answer the question. God is not trying to crush us with red tape and regulations. He gives us ten commandments, not prison bars, Traffic laws. Are you grateful for traffic laws? Some of you may drive as if they don't exist, but for the rest of us, we are, are grateful. You, you may, you know, get frustrated that the red light is so long and 
You may you know, drive through a, a few stale yellows when you're turning left, but overall, you're, you're grateful, right, that people stop and they go. They're supposed to put on a turn signal. It is, I, I, I am convinced, one of the great sins in life, not using the turn signal. That's another sermon. People slow down when there's a school nearby. They stop when there's a school bus stopping. People follow these laws. You could not drive your car to the grocery store without laws. When you're driving some hairpin switchback pass in the mountains, do you curse the guardrails? Oh, these guardrails. Or do you think someone at great expense put these guardrails up, not to make my life miserable, but to keep me safe in case I start to swerve, in case I hit a patch of ice. These are here not to imprison me, but so that I might move about freely and safely. That's the commandments. They're not given to a slave people to be free, but given to a free people that they might not be slaves again. And then finally, why do we obey these commandments? Not only because of who he is and who he is to us and where we are and who we are, but because of what he has done. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I, I did something. Our belief in God's law in the Ten Commandments, it's rooted in history. I would hope that even a, a fair-minded atheist or agnostic who may think, well, I don't like the Ten Commandments, at least could grant that we are basing our moral code on historical facts. Or at the very least would grant, well, I see that these people were set free and you think that God did it and therefore God has a right to tell you what to do. We are making factual claims and an appeal to some higher authority that transcends our own sense of right and wrong or the supposed wisdom of crowds. Even if someone said, I don't like the Ten Commandments, at least I hope they would grant, you are trying to base your moral code on something outside of yourselves. Not just look deeper, deeper into your heart to find what you think is right or wrong. Not an internet poll and you come up with the law of Bodie McBoatface. God did something in history and we're saying this is a God that we ought to listen to. And note once again that the law is coming after the good news of deliverance. In a way, law leads to gospel because law shows us our sin and then prepares us for the good news that Christ forgives us. But in a redemptive historical sense, you can also say that gospel leads to law. The good news of redemption from Egypt now leads to the good news of this law from on high. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. If you have the first sentence, salvation is a reward for obedience, then you're a legalist, it's a false religion. But if you don't have the second sentence, you're an antinomian. Salvation is the reason we obey. Jesus did not say, if you obey my commandments, I will love you. But he did say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. All our doing is because of what he has first done for us. And so as we move through these Ten Commandments in the weeks ahead, it will be not in an effort to pull ourselves up and prove our worth to God. 
We will time and time again see how we fall short, see how they cut us to the quick, see how they expose our failings and sins that we were unaware of. But God also gives them that we might know how to live as his children, as his precious people, as his obedient people who say, God, you have first loved us and now as an expression of my love for you and for my neighbor, I will follow your words. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us now as we enter into this sacred part of Scripture. It's all sacred, but there are certain sections that are these mountaintops like we have here with the Ten Commandments. Help us to learn new things. Help us to be reminded of things that we've forgotten. Help us to work to obey but to do so in the right way for the right reasons toward the right end. That you would be pleased and that we would be a joyful, free people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.